everyone, welcome to the show Off the Record. This is episode number 20, 29, and I'm here today with Marcus Kauke. Marcus is a fractional CRO for ambitious founders and CEOs of disruptive technology companies in the 10 to 50 million uh, pound turnover range who want to achieve scale north of 200% a year on a year basis over the next five to eight years. He is also the co-author of Making Channel Sales Work, founder of Sales of Force for Good, and produces two podcasts of his own, Scale-Ups and Hypergrowth and The Inquisitor. So I'm super excited to have you on our show today, Marcus. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Be careful what you wish for. Well, I, uh, <laughs> I'm expecting for some nice authenticity. <laughs> Um, before we start, uh, maybe Marcus, you could start off by telling the, the audience, the listeners, what your job as a fractional CRO is exactly, uh, just so they have some context. Okay, so many people confuse a CRO with a VP of sales. Um, they are not. Uh, a CRO is a chief revenue officer. So their job is to make sure that all the revenue operations, sales, marketing, customer success, account growth. We don't call it account management because that encourages zookeepers. Um, and anything that touches the customer is the purview of the CRO. So my job is to make sure everything that we do is aligned around the customer and is working in concert to serve their outcomes. Um, if you do that well, uh, then you end up with happy customers who get the outcome they paid for, and you end up with highly engaged staff who actually want to come to work, and they're the single biggest differentiator and lever that you have in order to deliver happy customers. Awesome. That's a great explanation. Thank you. I wanted to ask you, Marcus, with your experience in sales, um, I'm sure you could relate to the concept of prospecting and the importance of it and how different it's kind of maybe become in the last kind of 10, 20 years or so. Uh, you've witnessed this change and evolution of like different things that people do, processes or the way they get or do prospecting. Do you think prospecting is a skill that people naturally need in sales? I don't think people naturally possess it. I think everybody has to have it. If you don't have a natural prospecting radar um, that you... Uh, cultivate, um, then you're leaving a shed load of money on the table. And that's, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's an act of gross misconduct. Um, you need to have a referral habit. You need to understand that your customer's customer could easily be a prospect. So you need to learn how to cultivate introductions to them. Your supply chain uh, or your customer's supply chain could just as easily be a customer. Um, alumni who've left, the family tree, sister companies, parent companies, overseas subsidiaries, uh, joint ventures, all of those could be a great referral uh, opportunity. And then you have the organic growth, which is sell them more of the same, something similar but different, uh, into a different department, different division. And I think far too many people are fixated on the wrong end of sales, which is new logo acquisition and new business, um, which is very expensive and highly inefficient by comparison to selling to your existing customers, growing and expanding them, keeping them. Um, you know, I, I think culturally what's happened is that 
because so many businesses are fixated on revenue growth, um, they forget the really important thing is what you keep, not what you make. Um, and if you're letting uh, you know, 25% of your customers out of the back door because you're not paying good attention to them, you're not looking after them, they're not getting the outcomes that they want, then shame on you. So um, to come back to your question, prospecting has and it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed in that you have to be timely, contextually relevant, and you have to deliver value in every touch. Um, so you were always told to sling your hook uh, if you weren't relevant or you came at the wrong time um, and if you didn't deliver value. And a lot of salespeople are just um, you know, badly dressed uh, brochures in, in suits um, and they bring no real value. They don't understand the context in which uh, the customer buys. Now, most of the work that I've done is around complex, sophisticated uh, solutions. And turning up and just talking about my features and functionality is just going to make me a massive interruptive irrelevance. Um, so I, I need to do my research. And I think, you know, in the old days, I used to go to the library and I'd uh, look up directories and I'd get names and telephone numbers. And then I'd look at the compass directory and I'd find out what these companies did and which markets they operated in, all this kind of stuff. Now we've got the internet, which is bloody brilliant. Um, but there's also the flip side, which is your customers have access to the same sum total of human knowledge um, with a few uh, clicks of the mouse and a few strokes of the keyboard. Um, so what I think people don't really understand is that the context of our marketing changed around 2010 um, because buyers actually got closer to what economists would call the perfect market, where they have access to the bulk of information about you, your competition, and alternatives that solve the same problem but don't necessarily compete, obviously, in exactly your space. Um, and I think prospecting is a daily activity. It's not something that you leave until you desperately need it, because otherwise you end up with these peaks and troughs. Um, and that's why you know, so few salespeople actually hit their quota, because by and large, most of them breathe a sigh of relief when they get a deal in. And um, you know, most of the rest of the time, they're staring at their phone aggressively praying it will ring. Um, or hoping to trip over the valley of lost prospects. Um, you know, bad news, folks, doesn't exist. Um, and the telephone is still hyper-relevant. Uh, my pal, Justin Michael, uh, a couple of weeks ago, did 133 dials, got 88 effectives, and booked 33 meetings in a day for one client. So it can work. You just have to be good at it, and you have to learn. Uh, email marketing, you know, email marketing, um, the blight of virtually everyone's inbox um, is largely an act of cruelty inflicted by uh, marketing departments where they pour out their marketing morphine um, into unsuspecting uh, people's inboxes. And of course, they're ignored because the headlines are boring, the content's irrelevant, uh, and the, uh, the, the, the content is useless. 
it's selfish, it's self-aggrandizing, and that isn't prospecting either. Um, so many people say, oh, we get our business through referral and recommendation. Well, do you have a system for it? Can you forecast off it? Because if you can't, that's not a business. That's just luck, and you're playing at running a business. Um, so digital advertising, another one of my bugbears. Yeah, average uh, op uh, sorry, click-through rate uh, on Google is about 1.91%. On Facebook, 1.61%. And those stalker adverts that bother you and follow you around for months, that's 0.035%. But there are a few people who make an absolute fortune driving digital marketing uh, through pay-per-click. So um, prospecting hasn't changed in that you still have to be relevant. And it, the timing has to be right because 95 to 98% of your total addressable market wants to be anonymous and is either making space for an idea or they're looking passively and bombarding them with lots and lots of irritating phone calls uh, is just going to irritate them. So um, there's a technology out there called White Rabbit Intel, and there are other companies that I'm aware of, I believe. Um, and what they do is they identify the people who are moving from passive to active looking. So instead of bombarding the 10,000 people on your database, it just helps you to pinpoint the 200 who this month are transitioning from passive to active looking and will welcome a call. And is that, is that intent-driven data? No. Intent-driven data is total horseshit. Okay. Then can you tell me... Okay, so let's talk. Let's talk about that. What? What would? How does that company, uh, White Rabbit, Intel, or others, determine whether they're being moved from passive to active? And then, w w if that's not intent-driven data, then what's the difference? Well, intent-driven data is: I say I am going to do something. Now, I don't suppose anyone's ever told you they'll call me back in a couple of weeks. They'll buy from you. Okay. Right. So what this looks at is actual behavior. And so it looks at all uh, third-party GDPR compliant data. It looks at your public domain. Um, it looks at all of your uh, social media activity. It looks at where your company is. It looks at where you are in your job function. Looks how long you've been in it, all that kind of stuff. Um, and um, that actually gives incredible accuracy. Um, so, uh, you know, 15 times higher um, uh, conversion rates. Now, that means that you can spend more time on the people who can and will buy instead of those who could but won't. Got it. Okay. That's definitely something for us to take a look at or for the audience, I think, to take a look nah, at. You don't I want think to do that. That'll be useful. Because um, <laughs> we've been we've been looking at intent-driven data. And I think it comes from behavioral aspects of it, but we never really truly know where that data, you know, how it's coming to them and how valuable it is. But I'll I'll but, tee up a I'll tee up a conversation with them for you. because uh, it, it it really is breathtaking. Right. Um, there's a, a telemarketing company that I'm working with at the moment, um, and they're using it, and they've got a 700% higher close rate. Okay, I could definitely go for that. Well, why wouldn't you? I mean, it, it just strikes me um, that there are so many people out there doing... Um, my, 
my favorite poster on my office wall came from my third favorite website, despair.com. Um, it's a must for any grumpy old cynic out there. Um, do you know all those irritating posters that say, you know, they show an eagle and it says, dare to soar, or there's a picture of a runner and it says, it's lonely on the last mile, another tosh like that. Well, it's the antithesis of that. Um, so they have a customer dissatisfaction charter um, and it, it says, we're not happy till you're not happy. Okay, so it's for proper grumpy old bastards like me. Um, and it was a picture of the Pamplona bull run and it says tradition, just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. And I think too few people are actually looking in the mirror and asking themselves some basic questions. Um, there was a, a study that the British Army uh, ran in probably the 1960s, early 70s. And it was to try and work out how they could speed up artillery gunfire. And um, so this captain was tasked to do this job and he went along with a clipboard and a pen um, and uh, he was observing these soldiers and they, two of them would carry the shell um, and then the third man would open the back of the breech and then they'd shove it in and then um, they'd lock the back and one of them would march away 12 paces, turn around, put his right arm behind his back and his left arm he'd hold up. Um, and he asked them, well, why do you do that? I don't know. That's why. We, that's how we were trained. That's the way we do it, sir. Um, well, who trained you? The gunnery sergeant. So they went off to the gunnery sergeant and asked him. And he said, that's the way I was trained to train them. That's the way we train them. That's the way we train the Minister of Arms Army, sir. Anyway, after about two weeks of observing this weird behavior, um, he was down the pub and there was this old codger. And he said, you were in the gunners. Um, why did they do it that way? Oh, that's easy. They're holding the horse. Now, they hadn't used horse-drawn artillery since the First World War. But it was a tradition. And lots of people do things the way they always have. Um, and prospecting is one of those things. Mm -hmm. Go from A and dial until you get to Z. Sellotape the phone to some poor bugger's hand, or now, nowadays, uh, get them to auto-dial 300 dials an hour. Um, don't train them in the really important things like business acumen, just teach them the basics about the product and maybe one in 10 will survive. And it doesn't matter that they burn out and they turn over and that you have a constant recruitment problem. Um, don't train your managers. We're in the third generation of managers who don't know how to prospect and don't know how to teach people to prospect. They don't even coach anymore. Crazy. It is crazy. Uh, on that note, I want to talk about something you mentioned before when we had a chance to connect. It's about the buyer journey. Um, so maybe to tell the audience members, what is, what is the buyer journey and why should we care about it? Okay. Um, I'm going to give you two buyer's journeys and you tell me which one matters the most. Okay. Um, we're on a trip to McDonald's. Okay. And the customer drives up to the squawk box, places the order, drives forward, pays their money, and then picks up their food from the next window. Okay. That's the classic buyer journey from the McDonald's employee's perspective. The real buyer's journey. I've got three kids. When they were toddlers, McDonald's was a favorite. 
I'm hungry. And so eventually after half an hour of this shit, I'd, I'd uh, capitulate. And we piled them into the back of the car. Meanwhile, they'd be shouting three daughters, decibel level up to about 98, um, fighting, punching, um, World War Three breaking out. Fight my way through traffic, end up at the drive-in, and there are eight cars in front of me. And I'm trying to take the order. Now, they all order different things, um, and so I'm trying to remember the order. Then... Um, I get to the point where I'm almost about to make uh, the order through the squawk box and one of the little buggers changes their mind. So now I'm worrying that I'm going to get it wrong. I put the order through on um, a bad sound quality tannoy uh, to someone who doesn't speak English as their first language. So I'm not absolutely certain that the order is going to get through and I know hell is going to break out if I haven't got the right stuff. So the best bit is when I drive through to the window where I'd lose my money and I tap my card and then I receive my food and I'm thinking, should I check it? Because it's not the first time that they haven't given me the right order. Now, I don't check it, so I drive off um, and then all hell breaks out because they got the wrong food. Uh, one of them got a burger instead of nuggets. Um, and a couple of minutes later, I look in the rear view mirror and one of them's got a chip sticking out their nose. Um, and um, I'm telling them, don't spill the fucking milkshake. Um, and now I've got to clean up some uh, milkshake from my upholstery. Um, there's vomit and a trip to A&E uh, to remove the chip. And then I have to get rid of the packaging. That's the real buyer's journey. Now, if I've, whenever I've gone into an organization, I ask them about their real buyer's journey, I get 12 different opinions from 12 different people because they've never actually sat down to understand the buyer. Now, you have to meet your buyer where they are. Um, now, if someone had come to me straight after lunch to sell me McDonald's, not interested, okay? Um, if someone had uh, come to me when I'm just about to go out for a nice meal and they try and sell me McDonald's, I'll be kicking them out just in case it caused the kids to kick off. Um, so now I'm thinking... Um, what do I have to do? Well, first of all, what I've got to do is understand where my customer is in their life cycle. Are they in startup? Are they in continuation where they're kind of flatlining? Are they in growth or hypergrowth? Because both of those have very different pain indicators. Are they in turnaround? Are they in recovery? Uh, where is my customer individually in that journey in their job? Are they new to the job? Are they settled? Are they being driven to grow the business? Is the business in turnaround, they're under pressure? Are they, have they just come through uh, a difficult period and are they licking their wounds? And then I have to understand that selling to enterprise, there are 11 to 12 decision makers in the buying committee or the decision-making unit. And I have to navigate all of that. And I have to understand that the people who really understand the problems are right at the bottom of the organization. The managers understand about three quarters of it. Um, the senior managers understand about 7% of it and the senior executives really know about 4% of it. So how do I come prepared, well-researched so that I can uh, challenge the presets and the, uh, the comfort zone? Because my biggest competitor, 60% of buying cycles end up in no decision, in the status quo. Now, 
29.6% go to uh, the vendor who early in the conversation destabilizes the customer's current preferences, is able to demonstrate the business case to justify the move, and is able to create enough points of difference between them and everybody else, including the status quo, and is able to allay uh, anticipated regret and blame, future buyer's remorse, and understands the individual personal motivation for the individuals I'm selling to and why they will buy. Um, I'll give you a great example of what I mean by this. A few years ago, um, my company was training Oracle, and one of the Oracle guys got an RFP land on his desk, and he wasn't going to respond to it. And the bosses said, you've got to be in it to win it, very lottery mentality. So he filled it out at rate card, and a week later, or two weeks later, he got, uh, congratulations, you've been selected. Now, bear in mind, this is Oracle selling to a German company in Germany, which was 100% SAP. Um, and he couldn't believe he won it. Anyway, about six months later, um, he got to meet the CTO um, in another company because he'd moved jobs. Um, and he said, um, Hans, why, why did you buy Oracle? You were an SAP house. They had something almost identical to what we had to offer. And even though he'd left, he looked over his shoulders and he whispered, well, you know, at the time, I didn't have an Oracle implementation on my CV and I needed one to get this job. So he spent 3 million euro of someone else's money so he could improve his CV. Now, you've got to understand all of that. And prospecting requires you to do your research, understand human beings. Um, you've got to navigate their political climate. You've got to understand the implications of if they make this purchase decision, what's the ripple effect? If you drop a pebble in the pond, the ripples go out. So other people are going to be affected. So you need to understand when you're selling stuff like this, what will it replace? What's the vested interests? Who's going to politically try and defend keeping the status quo? How do I destabilize that? Who do I need to get on side? So it's like 3D chess. It's so much fun. <laughs> That's a great example. It's so true. You never yeah. really know the rationale of some people's decisions until like you ask them, like maybe at some point, if you have the confidence to do it, because I see that with a lot of salespeople, they like don't want to push too much because in the in the fear of like losing it or like looking bad so they just kind of like are at bay just like getting by uh, but if you really want to learn and be successful you got to ask those sometimes difficult questions that might lead to I, I'm going to give you the most difficult question any salesperson can ask okay um, what got you to this moment did the experience of meeting me today and working with us meet your expectations? And this is the killer. Have you seen better? I challenge every salesperson out there to always ask at the end of every call, every sales meeting with a prospect, have you seen better and invite the criticism. And the only correct response to the criticism is thank you. Okay. And learn from them. Your customers will teach you more in that 10 minutes whilst you're sh basically shitting a brick um, because you're terrified about the feedback that they're going to give you and uh, the, the ho holding up the ugly mirror to you. 
Um, I, I've done a series of uh, CXO interviews, and I asked that question about the the best salesperson they've ever worked with, and they can all point to one, in one case, two people. Okay, and these are people that they've worked with multiple times in multiple companies because they knew they were a safe pair of hands, and at the heart of everything those salespeople did was buyer safety. And this is something that salespeople have forgotten. The great ones never forget it. Average, even good ones aren't very good at it. Uh, but the great ones always put buyer safety front and center in everything that they do. And that requires you to be ready to be vulnerable. It requires you to operate with rigorous authenticity. It requires you to challenge yourself um, to uh, communicate with absolute clarity, putting customer success um, at, before your own. And you know, you've got to be reliable. You've got to be relevant. You've got to be responsive. You've got to collaborate with the customer. Uh, you've got to work with them over time. You always got to be asking what's coming next so that you stay relevant. Otherwise you've got a prospect and who the hell wants to do that? Love it. Thanks, Marcus. This is some great stuff. Um, I want to shift, shift gears a bit because uh, a lot of companies I know are struggling with this. It's about getting alignment between sales and marketing. <laughs> we see even with some other clients that we work with, this is still a problem, you know, with all the technology that everybody has around tagging leads, lead scoring, MQLs, SQLs, very few companies have, have not figured this out still. What is your opinion on this and how can people improve on this type of alignment thinking between sales and marketing? It's a really relevant and important question. You're not going to like the answer. Tell me. Speak to one another. Actually, bloody well, have conversations. Um, your marketing people should actually speak to customers. And I know there will be marketing people fainting all over the globe listening to this. Uh, the actual prospect is speaking to another living, breathing human being who pays your wages. Um, uh, customer success should come in early in the sale. Um, I've got a real heresy here. If you're selling an enterprise deal, it cannot go through unless customer success sign off on it first. Ha! Now, that would sort out an awful lot of the crap that uh, you have to pick up later because salespeople lie to get it over the line uh, or they fabricate and exaggerate. If, uh, if the CS people do not believe it can be fulfilled and executed well to the level that the customer will be happy and satisfied, it doesn't go through. Um, make sure that you have joint meetings. Um, so marketing and sales and uh, customer success and account management, account growth people, um, operations, finance, legal, they have to sit in on sales meetings. Uh, sales has to sit in on marketing meetings, uh, have them do the job of the other for a week or two, um, have them sit in. Um, and uh, then at the quarterly review, make sure that all the people who are involved have to turn up to the customer and be held to account for this, the service that they received and whether or not the customer got the outcome. Uh, the other thing I would definitely do, and I suspect I, I'm expecting people with pitchforks and uh, lighted torches round, um, align the compensation around the customer actually achieving the outcome they paid for. Um, pay only a little bit for winning the new logo 
pay a decent chunk for adoption and consumption because it means that it's actually doing its job. Uh, when the customer achieves the outcome that they intended, big payout to everybody who is involved in making them successful. Nice big party with the customer. Um, a big payout for um, cross-sell and upsell. And also a big payout for renewals. And don't make all the compensation um, around new business. And stop hiring salespeople who are highly competitive, uh, will to win, driven by money. Because most of them are total, total shits. What, if, if what... someone is well, if someone is genuinely motivated by money, it typically comes from one of two places. Either they grew up in extreme poverty and they don't want to go back. And I understand that, but it's still a selfish motive. And the other reason is that they're a soulless piece of shit. Um, I mean, you, if you, you can want money for the choices that you can make and for the experiences that you can have, but people who basically um, notch up, you know, notches on their bedpost on the basis of how much money they've made are generally ghastly, horrible human beings. Do you really want them representing you in, uh, out in the wider world? Hire people who are really collaborative, who care about the customer, who are systematic, who, are, um, who really bother to understand, who have an appetite to learn and improve. And actually, these are great salespeople who bring on the right type of customers who stay with you for year after year, decade after decade, and then compensate them well. Uh, make sure they have decent managers, managers who actually talk to one another and don't see each other as the enemy. Um, fix your leadership culture. So have leaders who are not, who haven't sold their soul to gamblers and speculators purporting to be investors, because uh, you end up with this shit um, where they say, oh, yeah, we're, we're a customer-centric company until the end of the quarter, and then they all turn into our souls. That's so true. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, I, I, wish, I wish it wasn't, but it is. I, I've it's, seen it's hundreds, thousands of times. Um, a couple more questions, Marcus. Uh, the next one I want to ask is um, something that I'm trying to get some advice on, actually. It's uh, in today's day around sales and marketing, there's a lot of automation going on. Uh, we have access to a lot of data. Uh, everything from, you know, LinkedIn, email, you name it, every marketing channel, everything can be automated. I personally find that the automation to be sometimes annoying, easy to detect with like that savvy user who's going to be receiving it, but, uh, sometimes can see the value of the time savings in a way. Where do you see all this automation stuff going? Is everything going to be automated eventually based on something like intent signals or, you know, things like that? Or is there something I'm missing? Uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think most automation is total crap. Um, the, the problem is that, that most of these companies have been really very clever at selling this myth of um, uh, personalization at scale. That's complete crap. You can be relevant at scale, but personalization is personal. 
Um, and very, very few organizations do that well. Um, so what you've got is this marketing spaghetti uh, that the CMO or the CRO has been peddled. And there's lots of functionality that crosses over. So they're duplicating or you know, pentlicating um, the, you know, the, the capabilities. Um, they are confusing. I think what the question we should be asking actually is what is the minimum level of technology we need in order to help our salespeople sell optimally? Um, and I think a decent CRM, uncomplicated, designed for and by the salespeople to help them sell more, not to feed an audit function. If the CFO wants a report, let him fucking well pull it off, okay? Uh, don't waste my salespeople's time on doing that. If um, anybody else wants a report, do it yourself, okay? So it needs to be simple enough so that any Egypt can pull off a report. Uh, but don't have salespeople faffing around reporting on stuff that doesn't um, help them sell. Um, I think a technology like White Rabbit is, makes a lot of sense. Um, there's another company that I'm um, a huge fan of called Gap in the Matrix. And what Gap in the Matrix does is it enables people to um, unlock by a consumer or buyer uh, decision making. So it uses 300 plus algorithms. Um, it's really bloody clever. Um, Kia, for example, um, just launched a new uh, petrol-driven MPV uh, in America uh, called the Carnival. They ran out of stock in the first month. Now, if you can imagine a less sexy category than internal combustion engine MPV uh, in automotive, I, you know, I'll pay you money. Um, I mean, it, there is nothing less sexy. And they ran out of stock without discounting a cent. So this stuff is really clever and allows you to choreograph the language uh, in every touch, emails, websites, sales decks, you name it. Uh, choreograph the language of the, uh, the prospecting call, um, the imagery and all of that stuff. Combine that with the right information about who is likely to be your uh, ideal customer. Because again, one of the other really interesting things is very often, I've seen this dozens of times, people are targeting an ideal customer profile, an ICP, that is the wrong ICP. And they've been doing it for years because that's who we started targeting five years ago or 20 years ago. Um, so regular reviews of that. Um, I think if I look at some um, email marketing, um, again, it's really, really well thought through and it's sequenced and aligned with uh, the, the telephone activity. So uh, a pal of mine, Justin Michael, he runs this thing called salesborgs.ai and uh, he's just written a book on technology and sales. Um, and his results are breathtaking. Um, I think another aspect of technology that can be really useful is um, outsourcing uh, to a company that will identify picker-uppers. People Rappers? who pick up, oh. people who pick up are picker-uppers, okay? And if um, Aram picks up, he's likely to pick up again. 
So I want my salespeople calling lists of picker-uppers. Now, you can arbitrage that by outsourcing it to a third party. Um, there are technologies like Connect and Sell, really interesting, where um, they will not only call your list, but they will then put the call through to your salesperson. So you pick a slot, say 10 to 11 o'clock on a Tuesday, and for the next hour, you will get five or six effectives with people on your list. If you've run it through uh, White Rabbit, you know they're in your target market and your ICP, and you got the language from uh, Gap in the Matrix. To my mind, that's pretty much everything that you need. Four or five bits of tech, uh, all focused on driving great opportunities into the top of the funnel, making sure, it because uh, again, this data, this comes from Connect and Sell, 40 million cold calls a year. So it's a good statistical base. On average, uh, today in the pandemic, it's 33 dial attempts to get one effective, unless you're calling a senior executive in IT, in which case it's 46 dial attempts to get one effective. On average, 14 effectives to get one first meeting. On average, seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second meeting. Now, the metric that really matters here is dials to advancements, okay? Um, I just did the math um, about half an hour ago. It's over 4,300 dials to get a second meeting. Insane numbers, it's crazy. Well, tell me about it. And that is brute force prospecting and brute force marketing which is why we need to look very carefully in the mirror and ask, why do we do it that way? So if you're not generating referrals, crazy. Referrals convert roughly one in six without training. They buy two and a half times as much on first uh, purchase than a cold call uh, purchase does. Um, they buy three times as frequently and they refer four times as often. So if referrals is not an integral part to every salesperson's behavior, then either you have an idiot for a manager or a salesperson who is a masochist. Thanks, Marcus. Last, last, so many great insights here. Thank you. Uh, last question. I always like asking this. It's kind of, kind of a weird one, but um, what, what advice would you say to a 30-year-old self? My 30-year-old self, um, I'd realized then that I didn't know everything, but I was too brittle to ask for help. Um, so I would ask for help. Uh, well, I'd say ask for help and learn to ask the question who, not how. Um, I, I, when I had my training business, I used to do this thing called a scavenger hunt. And the scavenger hunt was I'd list, um, you know, uh, identify uh, people, you know, with a wooden leg, um, with a medical degree, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I'd give it to the room and they'd go off and they'd have to speak to other people in the room. Only twice in 17 years did anybody come to me. I made the list. So it would make sense to go to the source. So I, I started my podcast because I wanted to speak to the most interesting people on the planet who'd written the book. So it'd been massively inspirational for me. Um, and so in the last two years, I've had access to over 4,000 years of collective experience. Um, off the back of that, 
I now have three strategic alliance threads uh, that mean that I can compete happily and confidently with any strategy house to do a major transformation in any size organization. Um, I can fill the funnel and I can um, make e-commerce uh, incredibly efficient. Okay. Now, I couldn't do that before. And the only reason I can do that is because I started asking who. So whenever I get stuck, I've stopped asking, how do I fix this? I look, I say, who knows how to do it? Who's done it before? And go straight to the source. That's great. I think getting, getting access to that knowledge is, is power at the end of the day. Uh, I, I've learned more in the last two years than I have in the previous 35. Okay, that's interesting. Well, thanks yeah. for sharing that, Marcus. Um, Marcus, thanks so much for participating in our show. Uh, for everyone listening, this was another off-the-record podcast episode. It's a new podcast with a goal to build a community of founders and VCs around it so they can help each other make better businesses together. Thanks again. I'll see you next time. Marcus, it was a pleasure. Awesome having you on our show. Thank you so much.